Thank you for joining the Levers for Change podcast, where we search for who is responsible for what in making an impact on the environment, the energy systems, and the economy. Today's guest is Karen Whalen. She started off her career as a Congressional Science Fellow for U.S. Senator Harry Reid. After a stint as the Legislative Director at the Natural Resource Defense Council, she returned to Washington, D.C. as a Senior Policy Advisor to Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi. We met up in San Diego a few months ago, and as we found out a few minutes into our conversation, we were sitting directly under the flight path of the San Diego International Airport, so we'll be accompanied by an occasional jet. You can find out more about this episode and about Karen's work at our website, www.loversforchangepodcast.com. Please remember to subscribe and share the episode. And now, let's see how a trained geologist ended up in Washington, D.C. Well, Karen, thank you so much for joining us today, and thank you for being part of this podcast. My pleasure, Jimmy. Great. You know, you started off your career as a geologist and geophysicist. Geochemist. Geochemist. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, Why don't you tell us a little bit about that and how that framed the way that you look at the energy issues today? Yeah, that's a great question. I always wanted to build dams when I was growing up. I spent a lot of time with hoses and twigs and, you know, running, running little streams all over the place. And then when I got to college and I was in the civil engineering program, I realized it was a very linear, uh, dry program and that I really didn't want to build dams. And it turns out that was a really good career move because people aren't really building dams. And it turns out to be a highly controversial way to generate energy. If anything, they're so, tearing dams down. Exactly. So I ended up doing some my bachelor's degrees in economics with a degree, with a kind of focus on international development. And, and there was a kind of a water element to it, mainly about access to water and women and water. And, um, and then I realized that I probably needed to keep going with my degrees. And so I got a master's degree in watershed management. It was in the College of Ag at University of Connecticut. And I did a lot of work on um, non-point source pollution from agriculture. I did a lot of water, groundwater quality and stream water quality monitoring and um, got a PhD in both watershed management. But then as, as I was working on that program, I realized that that was not scientific enough. It was a, a lot of the management side of natural resources. And I didn't want, it's not that I didn't want to have that, because I've always done a kind of a dual policy and science track, but I really felt like my PhD should be heavy into the science. So I ended up doing a dual degree in in the geology department and in the resource development department at Mm. Michigan State. And there I spent a lot of time looking at urban non-point source pollution and urban, the interaction of uh, groundwater and streamwater with land use. And so, again, it was very technical, very scientific, but there was always kind of this bridge to application and to managing natural resources. And then I thought, well, what's my next step? Wasn't sure I wanted to go into academia. And I um, I saw an announcement for a Congressional Science Fellowship through the American Geophysical Union, and I applied for it and I got it. And I hadn't I had gotten an agreement from my my uh, advisor that I could finish at the end of the summer, but he wasn't really paying attention. He was famous for not finishing students, like dragging on their PhDs long after, you know, even the eight years and getting wow. extensions. And I said, I don't want any part of that. And I ended up getting the offer to go to Washington to be a Congressional Science Fellow, which was great because it forced 
my committee to actually finish me when I wanted to be finished and not when they got around to it. So, so that's how I ended up in Washington. And, um, and you know, when you're a congressional science fellow, you, your office doesn't necessarily take advantage of your technical background. They take advantage of the fact that you're a smart body sitting in their office and they kind of throw whatever they want at you. And so that's how I started working on energy issues. It's how I ended up picking up the um, Indian Affairs Committee work. So I worked on Native American issues. I worked on nuclear waste issues, nothing that really was water. I'd had a couple water related projects, but it's really how I came to Washington and how I started learning about energy issues. So in some ways it was just given to you. And, uh, you know, these energy issues. And, yeah. And oh, it was just... pick it up really yeah. quickly, as fast as you can. Yeah, that's exactly right. I was learning the people. I was learning the process. I was learning the history of the issues. And then I was learning, like, the basic issues around. And even the, even things that were related to water and geology, like uh, hydraulic fracturing, I didn't really know anything about it. But when I was working for Reed's office, they were moving uh, a big comprehensive energy bill that included some um, exemptions to the Clean Water Act for hydraulic fracturing. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up being, because I was a geologist, because I knew water, they threw me into those conference negotiations. I didn't know the law. I didn't know Clean Water Act. I didn't know, you know, and those were the things. And that that's an energy issue So because it was part of the energy bill. Right. And, and I ended up being part of those discussions. So that's how I, that's how I entered the big policy debates by being thrown into them. So you mentioned, uh, you know, Senator Harry Reid, who you mm -hmm. worked with as the Congressional Science Fellow, yeah. and then eventually you went off to work for uh, Nancy Pelosi as well as Speaker of the House. How would you say is the tenor of the Senate and the House different in the way that it approached energy issues? That's a great question. Well, they're they're fundamentally at different places by design. You know, the the framers of the Constitution saw the House as the kind of the people's the people's body. And so you've got 435 members, you've got, you know, seniority becomes really important in the House. The committee work is very important because you've got too many people, so you have to manage through the committees. And so the committees, the committee chairs are very important. They're, they, they actually, the staff on House committees get paid better than the staff on the Senate mm -hmm. committees because the body of the work, like the Energy and Commerce Committee in the House, about 60% of the business of the House goes through Energy and Commerce because it's got such a broad jurisdiction. And then you think about the Senate. The Senate is, they, they say it's the, um, it's the saucer to cool the tea that comes over from the House. And so, the, you know, it moves more slowly. It's supposed to be the deliberative body, the debate style on the floor. You have unlimited debate, so a member can just go down and talk and talk and talk. Supposedly, every member is supposed to be equal. So there's 100 members and they're supposed to be equal. Of course, we know that's not totally true because the freshmen, you know, the junior senators get the worst offices. And, but they all can go down and object to, a, you know, holding up a bill. And so it's just they're just two different places. And leadership, you know, I worked for Harry Reid when he was the majority whip. And then I worked for Nancy Pelosi when she, she was the speaker. And the styles of leadership have to be different because you have 100 people. It, basically, you've, you're overseeing a caucus of somewhere between 45 and 55 members, or 60 if you're lucky. And the House, you've got 230-something members that you're trying to manage. And so there's a much different way of managing your caucus in the House and the Senate just because of the nature of the building, the nature of the chambers. So then how does that influence, uh, you know, an energy bill or an energy policy that's trying to get implemented? Like yeah. When you were in the House, how would you work with your Senate counterpart 
and vice versa. Well, that is interesting because when I was in the House, we passed the Waxman Market Climate Bill. And we passed health care and we passed a number of very large bills. And the Senate Democrats were looking at us like, can you help us? Can you help us? <laughs> it's not easier to pass a bill in the House. It's just a different process. In the House, once you get a bill through the committee, you've that's where most of the deliberation happens is in the committee. And so you're churning through weeks of hearings and weeks of markups and amendments and every member will throw every amendment that they have at the bill. And that's where the big, the majority of the fights happen. And then when you bring a bill that's gone, and, and of course in the House too, there are all these committees that want sequential jurisdiction. And so they may all hold hearings and markups of the bill. And then you've got this bill that's been through an incredible legislative process before it gets to the House floor. And then when the bill goes to the House floor, members can propose amendments, but all those amendments go to the Rules Committee, and the Rules Committee decides which amendments will actually get debated on the floor. So it's easier to get an amendment into on the committee than it is to get it on the right. House floor. That's right. So very few. There will only be a few amendments. There will be more amendments offered by the majority than the minority, but usually the Rules Committee will let one or two amendments go. And then the the minority has one last attempt to do something to the bill, and it's a motion to recommit. And so they can throw something out there that that's usually a message thing, the kind of a gotcha vote. And natural resources, they would always do things like, you know, there was a scandal about the interior staff looking at porn on their computers. And so there would be these, um, these gotcha motion to recommits that would say, you know, none of these funds can be spent to... Um, you know, to watch porn. And and if you voted no, you, you know, against the motion to recommit, uh, you could, were subject to, you know, bad ads where, you know, you could say you, you know, you voted to watch porn to let <laughs> interior staff watch porn. So on the Senate side, the committees are important, but they're not the only place that debate happens, that a lot of work can happen on the Senate floor. And, and it's designed that way. So a bill will move through the committee uh, and then it'll come to the floor and there are all these rules and traditions about how long a bill should be on the floor and what the procedures are. And those are not as strict as they, not, not, it's not the word strict, maybe honored as they were before. I mean, the, the Senate just doesn't bring bills to the floor and have them on the floor for a couple weeks like they used to, uh, to, you know, debating amendments. And that's just not happening. Right. The tradition has eroded. Yeah, it has. Yeah. So that, that was the difference. But now, you know, now people are talking about getting rid of the filibuster entirely, which yeah. is, you know, because it's been overused. But it was a way to kind of let the hot tea that came over from the House cool and to be subject to, you know, a more deliberative discussion about, about the issues. Mm-hmm. Did you, and just from your personal experience, did you find one or the other more open to the types of energy work, energy policy work? No, I, lo- I loved both. I, I mean, I, I, loved, I loved both. The House, we actually moved more bills just because of, you know, we were in charge. And then when I worked in the Senate, for most of the time I was there, we were also in charge, you know, the Democrats were also in charge. And so we were able to move things, mm-hmm. but they have their strengths and weaknesses. I certainly wouldn't have wanted to be in the minority on the House side because there you don't, you don't do much. You throw bombs. You, mm-hmm. you don't have a lot of power. The speaker really controls the power of the House. Right? So, so just to understand a little bit better about that committee structure, then it, it sounds like there are staffers both hired for to 
help the committee, but then mm-hmm. there's also staffers for each member right. of the house. That's right. So then do you have to start interacting? I do. How do those... You know, that's a really interesting question. I think we talked about this. I, I made a mistake one time when I was being interviewed for a job when they said, did you supervise anybody in the speaker's office? And the answer is no, I didn't have any direct reports. But my husband, who at that point was working for leadership on the Senate side, has been asked that question. He said, well, I, I have to oversee all of these people and all of these members. And that's exactly what I had to do is I had a worse job than just managing a group of people because I had to manage those people and the issues for an outcome and none of them reported directly to me. So I, yes, I managed a lot of people and a lot of high powered people that, you know, chairs of committees I had to go talk to and tell them what the speaker wanted to do. And I had to, you know, implement her agenda by working with staff. And so there's the committee staff, you're right, there's committee staff, and then each member has their own personal staff. And sometimes sometimes you don't have to deal with the personal staff, but if they don't have a really strong role like a committee chair or a subcommittee chair, but they have a strong interest in, a, in an issue, then you're dealing with both the member and their staff on it. So you can, you're talking like sometimes I would have these coordinating meetings on a bill where there'd be 60, 70, 80 people in the room that I would be managing. So they weren't direct reports to me at all, and I had to take in you know all of their concerns and things. And then... That's not even talking about all the outside interests that want to influence the process and be part of the process. And I'd have to call them all in together and and figure out what they were looking and who they were talking to. And, you know, and it's hard for us to track all the votes. So we often would rely on the outside groups who are having, you know, all of these meetings with members to figure out where we were on moving a particular bill. Right. And if I understand correctly, it's the whip position is supposed to be the person right. who's counting the votes internally right. for the, That's the right. two parties and mm-hmm. both sides of the... Uh, yeah. Uh, so in the Congress. House, because there's so many members, there's a whip who's the third in line. So there's the speaker, the majority leader, and then the whip. And that's Mr. Clyburn right now yeah. from South Carolina. And then there are all these deputy whips, and they're usually organized around regions. And then they have a whole list of members that they're responsible for counting. Right. And so, you know, what you mentioned was a good segue of talking about how the internal organization works to them, how it interacts with the ecosystem. Yeah. You know, we hear a lot about lobbyists. Uh, we hear a lot about it, I think, from people on the outside mm-hmm. who are trying to lobby into Congress. But you were inside. And I was a lobbyist. And you were a lobbyist. I was a registered lobbyist for a nonprofit. So what is it like when you're on the inside and you're getting inundated with these lobbyists? Well, requests? so actually, they help do your work. They can help you. And, and this is not a bad thing. I just think that there needs to be a lot of transparency around the fact that they are pushing, they represent constituents, whether it's a nonprofit environmental organization or a a lobbyist that's representing a company, they are representing an interest that has a legitimate reason, a legitimate right to want to be part of the lawmaking process. So I don't have the jaded view of lobbyists that, that a lot of people do because they are, people don't have the time to and, and the knowledge and the understanding and the access to understand how to how to be part of the legislative process. And people who are in Washington who know the system help to bring people's views and issues to light. And they often know the issues better than the average staffer. I mean, especially in the House side, a personal office probably has like, you know, the, a, a staffer will be 25, 
has a million different things on their plate. And like I said, you know, coming into Congress, I didn't know the issues. I was thrown into representing the member in these venues, but I had to rely, I had to find people you trust. I mean, Native, the Native American issues were a classic issue because those some of those are dealing with treaties that go back to the 1800s and then law built on top of law built on top of, and then court case built on court case. And so there's this body of knowledge that people who've been doing this all their life have that a staffer doesn't have. And so you gotta know who you can trust. I think it's important for the public to understand that lobbyists are bringing a certain viewpoint to, you know, and, and we should know how much they're contributing to members and all that should is public. But it doesn't, I mean, they're still a really important part of the system and they can provide you with fact sheets that you can actually look at and go, well, this is going to help me write the memo to my boss. This group wants this, this group cares about this, and I've got all the fact sheets here that tell us what they want out of the bill. So they, I think they're a vital part of the system, but transparency is really key to you know, how they are part of the system. And are there conversations with individual constituents and coming through as well, not just summarized yes. by lobbyists? Yeah. I, I think one of the most successful things that lobbyists can do, is, especially if they're working with nonprofit organization or local organizations, is to do what they call fly-ins, where they're bringing constituents in for day-long lobby trips. And I've, I've run them. I've brought you know entrepreneurs and venture capitalists and energy workers in to meet with members and we go you know half an hour by half an hour by half an hour you just run from meeting to meeting talking hopefully directly to the member but sometimes to the staff and staffer that, that's often a more fruitful meeting anyway but those fly-ins those dated those meetings directly with the people that are affected are, are really important and then every member has district offices and they go back every every weekend usually and They'll be. They're not sitting at home during those weekends. They're they're doing fundraisers, but they're also, you know, holding meetings with their constituencies and doing events yeah. and things like that. So, yeah, those are really important. And you know, how did you perceive people balancing out the national issues versus local issues? Oh, everything's local. Everything's, everything's local. local. Yeah, that's that's you know what I found is you know I've been working with the Energy Futures Initiative and the National Association of State Energy um, officials to produce this U.S. Energy and Employment Jobs Report. And we do a national report, which is a which is surveying companies in, in the energy sector about who they employ, difficulties in hiring, what does their workforce look like, how much do they get paid. And then, and then the survey goes deep into oversampling in the state so that you really get a good sense of what's happening in the state. And then you can break that data down into congressional districts and all the way down even, you know, counties and state legislative districts. And those numbers at the congressional level and at the state level turn out to be, you know, really, really important to the debate over clean energy policy. And so it's the national report. We looked at the numbers of downloads um, on this jobs report a couple months ago, and the national report had been downloaded a couple thousand times. And the state fact sheets, the total number of state fact sheet downloads was well over 3,000. So those state fact sheets were way more important. And that doesn't even include like people who've saved them on their hard drive and are using them. We had we knew people used those jobs fact sheets in gubernatorial uh, education meetings and mm-hmm. the energy efficiency advocates and companies that work in the energy efficiency space told me that they use those fact sheets for every meeting that they go to. They put it down in front of a member and say, these are the jobs in your district because that's what the member most cares about is how is it going to affect my district or my state. Right. So it's all it's all local with some some sense of a national agenda, but 
in the end, the accountability for members of Congress is at the local level. So then when you're working for a Speaker of the House who is watching over a national issue, a national yeah. policy, how do you tease that out from oh, the I mean, that's, members? Yeah, that's why having conversations with members about what they are going to need to be able to support a bill is really important and why those negotiations can be so in-depth over, and they're based on both a member's interest but a member's constituents and what the constituents need to see in order to support the member going forward. And so we paid a lot of attention to the 20, 30, 40 members who had real issues with a bill because they were going to have to explain their vote back home. So, mm. yeah, I mean, it's 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 really important. And I think that's the thing you'll see watching the speaker right now is that she is trying to make a safe place for all of her members and not just the most vocal members, and not just the majority of our members. Then how was your role, do you think, perceived on the global stage? Well, that's... So we uh, we passed Waxman-Markey in June or July of... Um, June, actually. It's the 10th anniversary this month, 2009. And that was also the United Nations uh, negotiations on climate were in Copenhagen. And that was like the big international meeting that everybody was putting you know, high hopes on is that Copenhagen meeting... And so I helped arrange the largest congressional delegation in the history of the House, a trip to the Copenhagen climate negotiations, because we had just passed Waxman-Markey and the world was watching. Mm -hmm. The world absolutely was watching. And so we had, I think, if I'm correct, we had 10 chairs of committees that went with us and four ranking members with us, plus another 12 to 15 members that went along with the speaker, the majority leader. And I can't remember if Mr. Clyburn was there as well. But anyway, it was it's just this massive contingent of House leadership and um, rank and file members of both parties came with us. And so, you know, so I was the one who negotiated all the meetings, where they were going to be, what they were doing. And, you know, that was that was wild to watch that the world was was watching what was happening in one chamber of one of our three branches of government. That that was pretty pretty amazing to see how they were paying attention. Yeah, I always find it amazing when I travel globally just to see the influence that our politics, our actions have on the global stage when it's theoretically not part of their influence or part of their control. Right, right. Uh, Well, we went to China. Chinese invited um, Speaker Pelosi to come to when she had just, so it was early 2009, actually. It was before we passed Waxman-Markey, but they she had had a long history of fighting with the Chinese over human rights issues. And she even went to, after Tiananmen, she went to China when she was a junior member of the House and with a couple other members and unfurled a sign out in the Tiananmen Square, you know, taking China to task. And so they were not big fans of Nancy Pelosi and she was not a big fan of China. But when she became the speaker and she made climate change her signature issue, they invited her to come for a state visit to China. And it was a wild experience to, to be in, you know, part of that trip. Yeah. yeah. I want to talk about a bit more of your individual role as you played mm-hmm. with all these different players yeah. and moving parts and everything. How did you, you know, as an advisor, as the energy policy advisor, how did you find influence on these issues and how were you able to get consensus and things done? First and foremost, I was representing very powerful people. So when I spoke, I spoke with the power of those people behind me. And um, and I remember one time having trouble with a committee at, for quite a while. And, um, and it was when I was a fellow. I was, so I was very young at this process. And the, our legislative director who said to me, 
come on, we're going to go over to um, see Senator Reid. And, you know, he never went to these committee hearings. And all of a sudden, you know, but I'd always prepare a notebook and I would always send my recommendations for votes to him. And he would usually send a proxy back so, so that he didn't have to go to all these hearings. And so this one particular hearing, after I'd had a really hard time getting the, the committee staff to provide me with bills ahead of time to review, I went in to meet with him and he said, OK, let's go. And I said, what? And we went back down on the subway that goes underneath from the Capitol over to the hearing. And he was going to the hearing with me. And he said, I, I understand they treat you very badly. And I said, no, Senator, um, no, everything's fine. Everything's fine. He said, no, 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 I won't have it because the way you treat you, you is the way they treat me. So what he was saying was, I can't let them treat you this way because you are representing my interests and I need to make sure that you get the information that you need in order to help me make my decisions. So he showed up at the hearing and they were, you know, the chair and the ranking member were quite surprised because he never showed up. And he made it very clear that I was to get all the information. And he ended up noting, you know, when they went through the opening statements, uh, they got to him and he said, uh, thank you for having me, and I note the absence of a quorum. And he shut the markup down for because they had the staff had not been providing me with information. So he stopped a markup as a result. It was partly to protect me. It was a wonderful. It was a really wonderful thing. But it was also that if his staff couldn't do their job, then he can't do his job. And so he made it very clear what he was expecting. So that's a kind of thing. I mean, not every member would do that and not every member could do that. But it just shows you that when I show up, I'm actually representing that power behind me. So that's one of the things that I was showing up in these meetings with big guns behind me with the big guns and then yeah. you bring the intellectual heft of what it is that you're actually yeah. doing well, I, mean, so I did a lot of really but I did a lot of when I was at the Natural Resources Defense Council yeah. I actually managed a lot of coalitions and yeah. you know a huge coalition of groups working on climate and energy and I had to figure out how to you know even just writing a letter that we'd get 30 groups to sign on to it takes a lot of consensus building and yeah. so I learned you know and I ran these huge meetings with diff- lots of different groups and I just kind of learned how to manage these large very difficult coalitions, which helped me certainly when I when I worked for the speaker. Yeah, and so you know, speaking about that, what the, these coalitions move slowly, mm-hmm. just by definition, because there's so many people you have to coordinate. Yeah. And then you know, House and Senate, the bills move slowly yeah. because of all the different issues going on in you know, different members. Yeah. What does success look like then? Oh, um, uh, you know, that's a so. When we were working on climate bills in the early days where Senator Lieberman and Senator McCain were working on bipartisan climate bills in the very beginning, what we measured success was by was the number of people who voted for our bill increasing from last year to the next year. So in one congressional session, we got 42 votes on a climate bill. And then we worked. That, that was kind of a position forcing bill. And we found out who was ready to vote for a cap and trade bill and who came close and was willing to have conversations with us, and then who was flat out against us. And you usually rank, when you have these conversations with members, you start ranking them one through five. One, they're definitely with you. One, they're definitely against you. Three, they're on the fence. One, you know, twos and fours, they, they could be pushed, so you gotta watch them. But that's how we did our vote councils, one through five. Mm. And so when we had a vote for 42, in support of the bill, even though it was not even close to a majority and not even certainly close to the 60, we then had a roadmap to how to approach another 15, 20 members based on that vote. And so the next time that big climate bill came to the floor in the Senate, we got 46 votes. And that was for us, that was an, that was success. We, we turned four members. We got four more members 
to understand the issues and to understand how to sell it to their constituents. And, you know, that's that's success even without actually delivering on a, you know, a bill that the president signs. And I I would assume to get those four additional uh, votes, you had to learn those local issues that they had to yes, care about. Yes, absolutely. And, and, and then it. a lot of these groups that worked in the coalition had local presence. Mm-hmm. So they would take the intel that we get from Washington and they would go into the local districts and find constituents who could talk to the member and who could deliver the message. And issue advocacy campaigns spend a lot of time at the local level trying to find voices that the members care about. And, mm-hmm. and um, so you do a lot of grassroots and grass tops, which are the kind of influencer people, to back in the district. And then that intel gets fed into kind of the national coordinating campaign. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's a back and forth. So it's a, it, the, running those coalitions is, is a very complex yeah. task. So in, you know, some of the documents that are published, like the Quadrennial Energy mm. Review and whatnot, there's obviously a lot about energy, you know, whether it's electricity or natural yeah. gas, but there's also a big section on water and a big section on smart grid cybersecurity yeah. and yeah. these issues, which many people consider non-traditional energy issues. Mm-hmm. So how do you manage these you know, non-traditional energy issues in parallel, in conjunction with these more traditional energy issues? Well, I I think it's seeing the connections, first of all, and and that was one of the really interesting things about the Quadrennial Energy Review, which was that we looked at energy as a system. And so then you look at all the different parts of the system. And actually, people, people, some people were very bored with the traditional energy issues, but found the energy-water nexus to be really exciting and interesting because it was fairly new. And some people who could care less about energy care about national security and will have the you know, you scare the bejesus out of them when you start talking about all the cybersecurity risks with with the changing nature of the electricity system. So it, it was just mainly making sure that we were looking at things as a system. Yeah. And so, you know, that review was published under Secretary Moniz. Mm-hmm. He was the one who pulled it together and said, this needs to get done. But then when we start, let's overlay that on top of congressional committee structures. Yeah. Did you have to work with different committees? Did it go to different committees? Do they have to break it down then to their specific yeah. issues? Yeah, yes. They did. That was a really interesting report in that there are lots of big reports that the you know that different administrations put out. But that first quadrennial energy review resulted in like over half of our recommendations being picked up by committees and they got moved in a couple different bills. It was mainly the Energy and Commerce Committee, but we spent a lot of time I went around the country, I probably gave seventy talks on the first quadrennial energy review, you know, at state association meetings, at the regulatory commission meetings, at the but all over. And and that was to kind of educate the broader group of stakeholders about what we were recommending so that they could help reinforce to members that as a federal employee, I couldn't lobby and I couldn't tell people to lobby. But when you kind of lay out an agenda for here are the problems that we see in the electricity system, here are the opportunities, and here are our recommendations, it was a pretty compelling report. And we didn't have to sell it that hard for the committee. And, you know, when you think about the length of time it had been since a major energy bill had been picked up. There was a lot of appetite for here's a problem that you've identified, a very concrete problem, and here's a solution that we can we can quickly attach it to. And we also that we when we put together the report, it wasn't just a bunch of um, experts getting together. We spent um, we did a lot of time going around the country doing stakeholder meetings, and we built a whole website to allow people to provide input and recommendations into us. And we relied very heavily on that stakeholder engagement so that our recommendations were kind of truth tested before we actually even threw them out to the public, mm. which helped the receptivity 
in the hill. Somewhere in there, you mentioned something we want to tease out a little bit more. Standalone energy bill versus yeah. policies that are embedded in other bills. Right. How do you manage that interaction of which strategy is the right one? You know, shoot for a big standalone bill oh. or put it into someone else? I think it's where the opportunity knocks at this point because Congress is so dysfunctional that, you know, I, I look at... Um, I look at kind of sector by sector. If we we're going to look at you know all the carbon tons that are coming out of our economy, a big, huge, comprehensive climate bill. The politics just aren't there. They're not going to be there. But um, but we know that a farm bill moves every six years. A transportation bill moves every six years. And the, those used to be the traditional windows when you'd get these big bills to move. They're kind of changing and now. But you know that a defense authorization bill is going to pass. You know, you know a defense appropriations bill is going to pass. You know those have to pass or must pass bills. So, okay, let's look at where the opportunities are in the farm bill to move energy policy. Let's look at where in the transportation bill there are opportunities to deal with it. And so... Those are still really big bills, but from an energy energy standpoint, you're you're a small piece of that. You could be a pretty large piece of it, but it's one part of a larger agenda, and it's an opportunity. So, right. and I remember one of the farm bills under George Bush Jr. was actually a farm agriculture and energy. Yeah, bill I think that that's the bill through. that created the um, it created some of the clean energy programs within the USDA for rural America. Right. Even though we're talking about energy, and now we're starting to talk about water and some of these other uh, non-energy, mm-hmm. non-energy issues, what would you say are some of the, you know, Congress is looking at a myriad of issues, not just energy. Mm-hmm. Which ones do you think might be more important than energy or might draw away attention from that as a core issue? Judges, health care, gun rights. But there, you know, there are those who say that there's no more existential threat to the planet than climate, and I am one of those. But in terms of what the public is caring about right now, I mean, this is changing, which is kind of an exciting thing to see that's happened over the last year or so. But in general, climate hasn't been one of the things that people stood up in town halls and screamed at members about. Mm-hmm. So, and and again, there are these must-pass things like appropriations that just sometimes just suck the air out of the ability to do anything else. Right now, the climate for getting real legislation of any stripe through is just really difficult. And so, you know, I, that's why I think, you know, for, we've been spending a lot of time talking about Congress, but we haven't even gotten to the states, which yeah, is where the true. real action is it's happening. True. And I remember when I, um, so I was a political appointee in the Obama administration, and when Secretary Moniz was nominated for before he was secretary, uh, I had a meeting with him where he said, well, what do you want to do for, you know, at DOE? And I said, well, I, wh- what would you like me to do? I'm, I'm here, you know, for at your service. And so I knew they were going to bring me on board, but I had no idea what they were going to bring me on board to do. And they ended up creating one of his top priorities was what he called raising the game with the states. They created a new policy office and created one team of state, local, tribal policy. And then I got to run that team for him. And I kept saying, I am so glad he gave me this job because I don't have to work, you know, in Washington. I can go out and see all the really cool things that are happening in the states in clean energy. Yeah, you know, I think one of the things I love playing with you is just throwing out a name and seeing how you know the person. (laughs) You seem to know everyone who is anywhere in energy nationally. And that's just, I think, one of the great things about that. But that's because I was in these positions where people, I was able to had access to some really powerful people and so people came to me so that's a big thing between having access and then no longer working for important people is people aren't calling me all the time <laughs> <laughs> only uh, insurance spammers exactly now right. all the time, right? <laughs> right. 
certainly, I think talking about those uh, state issues is right for another conversation yeah. or something. There's yeah. just so much there. So let's just focus on the federal level, uh, mm-hmm. since that's where most of this conversation has yeah. uh, been. Where did you find that you could make decisions really quickly? And where did you find that you had to really slow down and be patient and wait for a decision to happen? You know, working in the House, you, you can make very quick decisions. You can just make things happen. You have a bill that's brewing, and it's sort of an instantaneous thing. You know, there might be a couple months' worth of committee hearings and things like that, but then it comes down to the floor, and all of those, the things you're doing are really instantaneous decisions. And um, and and then when it's done, you're on to the next big thing. And so the, that time frame of decision-making is much more rapid than any place I've ever been uh, before. So in the committee, it sounds like they're super slow, in the House at any rate, super slow in terms of the, the deliberation of what's going on. But then once it's on the floor... Oh, yeah, well, you, on the floor, it's, it's very quick. And then even even committee here, even just, you know, you know a bill is moving. You know that, that staff have been working on it for months and months and months, but they're, they're down in the weeds, and then I'm in the back, you know, up in the Capitol being lobbied by lots of different people and also having lots of other issues on different other committees that I'm dealing with. And so the committee staff may be working, you know, they, they worked 20 hours a day writing, writing energy and climate bills. Mm. I, I worked really hard, but I wasn't writing the bills necessarily. Mm-hmm. So I was doing other things and all those other things were instant decision making. They're, they're like, you got to get a memo done. You got to get some, the secretary's going to, or the speaker's going to have a meeting tomorrow. So you got to quickly, you know, learn an issue come up with you know how she's ought to react to it and make a recommendation and get that done and then you're on to the next meeting you're on to the next trip or the next bill that something else is on your agenda so that just requires really really fast uh, decision making yeah. then what about ones where decisions were better when they were slower well i think the quadrennial energy review i mean that that was a that was a you know we came in in 2013 and the first quadrennial energy review was released in 2000, I want to say late 15. So it took us not quite two years to do this big interagency bill where we did, we had hundreds of different research projects with the national labs that fed in and were synthesized and written. And, uh, and we had many, many, many interagency meetings and meetings with the White House and stakeholders. And that was a long, long, long process. The end result, was you know a really incredible report that, that I'm very proud of being able to have been part of and that ended up turning into legislation that was signed by the president so you know that it was worth doing it right and doing it really comprehensively and and you couldn't do it you couldn't do a report like that really quickly yeah you need all that stakeholder engagement yeah. so then for people who are coming up and beginning their careers where do you think it's the best place for them to get started huh well I think everybody should have a stint in Washington because, you know, I, I look on Facebook and I look on Twitter and I look, you know, I listen to the conversations that I have when out visiting friends and family outside Washington. They really, truly do not understand the process. And I think it's useful to have a better understanding of the process so that you're more forgiving of the process and not so cynical about it and, or misinformed about it. Because, you know, for example, the framers of the Constitution envisioned things moving fast in the House and things moving slow in the Senate and that of the thousands of bills that are produced every year by all you know the 535 members very few of them are ever become law by design so you know I think Congress is really dysfunctional right now but 
some of that is just by design, uh, you know, and, and if you really understand the way things work, you know, there's a theater involved, too, where, you know, Senator Reid used to meet regularly with Senator Lott, who was the minority leader or majority leader, and they flipped back and forth, and they would talk about how things were going to happen on the floor, and you knew which members of yours were kind of crazy and were going to have to go down and scream about things, and, you know, you know, you kind of set it up so that everybody had their say, but then in the end, you knew what the process was going to be, and I think people need to understand that there's there's a process, there's some theater involved, there's some history involved that people don't understand that influences how things happen. So I think a stint in Washington is uh, Get rid important. of a lot of the misunderstandings yeah. of what's yeah. going on, right? And so then the last question. Where like do you a draft. Think, <laughs> draft. <laughs> oh, wouldn't that be wonderful for yeah. D.C.? Where do you think is are the biggest need for future expertise? I think it's probably the regulatory sphere. They really need to understand because policy moves much more slowly than technology. And we're not going to have a lot of big changes in national policy. So that means that state policy and the regulatory work at FERC and at you know, the Public Utility Commissions is where that has a lot of influence on, on what actually happens in energy, how we deploy resources, how we compensate people who are providing the, those resources. And so I think that's um, that's hard to learn in college. So just starting out trying to find ways that you can become more familiar with the policy and regulatory framework that you're operating in will help you move along in your career, actually, but help whoever you're working with. Yeah. And, you know, one thing I found about regulatory regimes is it was very helpful to learn them through the lens of history. Yeah. How they got started and why they got set up to understand why they're operating the way that they do. Exactly. Exactly. Cool. Uh, any last words of advice? No, this is fun. Great. This is fun. Well, thank you so much for your time, yeah. Karen. This was great. Yeah, thanks. You have been listening to the Levers for Change podcast, where we search for who has responsibility for what when implementing change. My name is Jimmy Gia, and the music is by Sean Hart. Please subscribe to our podcast for new episodes and share with a friend. Please visit our website at www.leversforchangepodcast.com for additional episodes, books, and other resources. Thank you again, and remember, when trying to change the world, search for your levers for change.